This is Lars. Thanks again for checking out my podcast. Enjoy your day and the show, and let's make America great again. Are you approaching retirement or maybe you've just changed jobs? If so, you'll probably now have control of your 401k or IRA. Would you like to buy some property, notes, loans, start a new business, or even buy crypto? You can with a self-directed IRA. For more than a decade, I've been telling you about setting up a self-directed IRA through IRA Advantage. And while you may now hear other companies say they offer self-directed IRAs, you need to find out if they're truly self-directed. With a truly self-directed retirement account, You can make any investment the law allows. Whether you're talking about true diversification, starting your new business, or investing in private holdings, IRA Advantage through a truly self-directed IRA can make that happen. Take it from me, Lars. You've worked hard for your money. IRA Advantage will work hard to keep it yours. Would you like to learn more about truly self-directed IRAs? Then visit IRAAdvantage.com. View our videos and call IRA Advantage. That's IRAAdvantage.com. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's Conspiracy Theory Thursday, and I'll have more to say on this in the commentary, but I decided this is such a crazy idea. And when I say crazy idea, generally these days, I mean something coming out of the Biden administration. Should your tax dollars fund mastectomies for teenage girls and castration for teenage boys? And if you say, Lars, you're just trying to be outrageous. No, I'm just talking about things that are actually being proposed as part of a taxpayer's job that you've got to pay for it. And who's proposing it? Why, the Secretary of Health and Human Services for none other than Joe Biden. But we'll get to that in the Twitter poll here in just a moment. Now, you want something even crazier? Well, i got to tell you about the plan. They want to set up a trust fund for poor children born in Washington State. Now, you say, well, that sounds like a worthy idea. Okay, would you like to put $150 million of your taxpayer money into it? Let me give you the description of that in just a moment. And then I'm going to tell you how Jay Inslee, Jay Inslee wants to hire some people to help the state out. Now, I'm not against privatizing a whole bunch of what state government does. In fact, I've suggested that in Oregon, in Washington, and in Idaho, the region we serve with the Radio Northwest Network. But then when Jay Inslee says, oh, and by the way, they can't live in the state of Washington. So if you live in the state of Washington, you can't do these jobs for the state of Washington. But secondarily, and this is the more important point, by the way, you don't have to be vaccinated. Now, Jay Inslee is the guy who laid down the vax mandates that caused almost 75 state cops to put their hats on the state capitol steps and simply walk away from their jobs. They were effectively fired. There were a lot of people, including snowplow drivers, people who operate ferries in the ferry system. These people all got the bums rush. They got a pink slip or the threat of one. And now Jay Inslee says, hey, we got to hire some more people to help out because the state and its vast bureaucracy can't get the job done. So we're going to hire people. They can't live in the state of Washington. They have to live outside the state of Washington. Oh, and by the way, they don't have to be vaccinated. Well, if that's the case, why don't you hire back some of the unvaxxed that you gave the bums rush to not so very long ago? I'll get into the details of all of that. But first, welcome to the Radio Northwest Network and welcome to the Lars Larson Show. If you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. And as always, naysayers go to the head of the line. If you'd rather email, it's talk at LarsLarson.com. Doesn't get much easier than that. And our Twitter poll, 
And no, I'm not just trying to be outrageous. I don't make this stuff up. Joe Biden and the nitwits he chose as secretaries of different departments, federal departments. These are people with vast authority, with gigantic budgets that, by the way, you pay for. Here's the bottom line. Health and Human Services Secretary Xavier Becerra says the Biden administration supports using taxpayer dollars to cover treatments. They call it treatment. I call it mutilation, like gender transition surgery for minors, as long as a medical expert says it's medically necessary. It includes chemical castration. It includes physical castration. It includes mastectomies for teenage girls. Yeah, all of that. As I said, I'll have more to say about it in the commentary a little bit later on this hour. But you can vote in the Twitter poll at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com. And always brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at UltimateTruckService.com. And just not to leave you in suspense, do I think that teenage boys and girls should suffer from mastectomies and castration, chemical or surgical? No, I don't. And even if that is something that their parents choose or that they choose, I don't think the taxpayers should be paying for it. So it's kind of two separate issues. But as far as I'm concerned, this is an issue that ought to be paid some great attention to. The mutilation of underage boys and girls, the kind that is life-lasting, that in some cases cannot be reversed. And by the way, we're already starting to hear and see the stories from young men and women who are now adults who say, I had this done to me when I was a teenager. The doctors signed off on it. I thought I wanted it then. I wish I could reverse it now. I'm suffering from both physical and psychologically. I'm suffering because I decided to have my breasts removed when I was a teenage girl and boys as well. So Vote in the Twitter poll. I'm kind of curious where that one comes out. Now, about that trust fund for poor children, you might say, well, anything we do for poor kids, this makes some really crazy broad assumptions. Um, and the story, the story says the Washington Futures Fund, it's actually in the Seattle Times fish wrapper, if you don't believe me. They want to create, this is in the next legislature, a pool of money that every child born under the state's Medicaid program would be eligible for. So they're assuming at the point of birth, that if you're on Apple Health, which is the fancy name, the cute little name that they made up for Medicaid, that if you're on family, you know, this Apple Health plan, uh, your family is poor. Does that, does, does that mean that you're going to end up being poor for the rest of your life? The problem is you can find lots and lots of stories, and I know that some of you know them personally, of people who grew up poor and they became very successful. Maybe not millionaires and billionaires, although there is a list of billionaires who grew up very poor and are billionaires today, and a lot of them are names that you know. So here's what the uh, crazies in Olympia at the state legislature want to do. Under the proposal, beginning in 2024, year after next, a minimum of $4,000, when they say minimum, that means they may go higher than that, will be set aside for every eligible child. The kid can't touch it until he or she, or they these days, is 18 to 35 years of age. And what would they be able to do with it? Well, they'd be able to buy a house, uh, finance the down payment on a house. They might be able to start a business. They could do things like that. 
They say because of the return on investment, if you take all this money, $150 million a year, set aside for 40,000 kids who are born under Apple Health, where you're assuming if you grew up poor, you're probably going to be poor the rest of your life. There's no way for you to succeed without help from the great and generous state of Washington. You know, when the state offers to give you something, just remember, Ronald Reagan said, any government powerful enough to promise you anything you want can take everything you have. They would then be able to tap into it at, say, age 18, 19, 20, 20. They might have as much as 50 grand set aside by that time because they're assuming that because you were born poor, you're going to stay poor the rest of your life unless the state helps you out. Is that an idea you can wrap your head around? And secondly, you've got crippling labor shortages in both Washington and, by extension, in Oregon as well. We're being told they aren't going to get the uh, the passes plowed because they got rid of a bunch of the snow plow drivers. Oregon's got that problem with ODOT. Washington's got it with WashDOT. Well, now Jay Inslee says they're going to go out and hire some private companies and employees to help out the Department of Human Services. And they say, we're going to hire these people, but if you want to take advantage of that, you can't live in the state of Washington. Oh, and by the way, you don't have to be vaccinated. Well, if that's the case, why don't you take off the vaccine mandate and simply hire back some of the many workers that you fired not so many months ago? Glad to be with you on a Thursday. Your call's at 866-HEY-LARS, and you're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. That makes a lot of sense, a lot of nonsense. Right, you're bloody well right. You know you got a right to say. This is the Northwest Nonsense. How much longer do we have to sit for this nonsense? That great moment every day where Lars brings you the cold, hard facts without any liberal wokeness from the daily dead fish wrapper or mainstream media bias. You know, I mentioned this at the top of the show, and in fact, it's our Twitter poll as well today, and I hate to shock you by using this language, so I've kept it as clean as I can and still actually discuss what's going on. Do you think that doctors should cut off the penises of teenage boys and remove the breasts of teenage girls. No? Well, me neither. But guess who does believe in castration and mastectomy for your children? Some of them. Xavier Becerra, who is Joe Biden's Secretary of Health and Human Services. Now, if you find that idea crazy, believe me, so do I. Becerra spelled it out in written answers to questions from members of Congress. Congresswoman Mary Miller Ask Becerra his position on gender surgery for kids. And here we're talking not about late teenagers. I'm talking about underage children. In his answer submitted two days ago, Becerra vows to support the World Professional Association for Transgender Health Standard of Care Version 8, which specifies both chemical and surgical mutilation of children. In Oregon, any kid can get what they call medical care. I don't call removing body parts medical care unless there's some other problem going on. But you can get medical care as a kid without the permission of your parents at the age of consent 15 in the case of Oregon. In Washington State, 13 is the age of medical consent. Can you imagine this? Your 13-year-old daughter decides to have her breasts removed because she sees herself as transgender, and the Secretary of Health and Human Services says, yes, the doctor should be able to do it, and yes, the taxpayers should pay for that. 
The HHS secretary says taxpayers should pay the cost if any doctor determines that removing the breasts and penises of your underage kids is medically necessary. We're already hearing the horror stories of adults who had this done when they were kids, and now they deeply regret it in many cases, and they can't exactly fix it. You don't even have to guess whether I find this both horrifying and outrageous. The question is, do you? Our question of the day comes in from Lou and says, Lars, love listening to the show. A tip for those who still want to buy a firearm before the tyranny steps in on the 8th of December, we can still buy long guns in Idaho. I called around looking for a specific varmint rifle. Uh, a shop in Idaho had one, long guns only. I'll tell you what, Lou, I have asked the folks I know in the gun business, it does not sound like that workaround is going to work because every FFL dealer has to abide by the laws, not only of the state where the FFL dealer is, which would be Idaho in this case, but the uh, the laws of the state that he's selling into. That is, if somebody from Oregon goes to Idaho or Nevada or California and says, I'd like to buy a gun, and they're trying to sidestep the Oregon law, it ain't going to work. I don't even think it'll work before the big gun ban goes into effect one week from today. And then Clark County. Uh, let's do today's Daily Grill. Insane. Are you completely insane? Ridiculous. They get more and more ridiculous. Flat out dumb. You're even dumber than I thought. Who deserves today's Lars Grill of the Day? Maybe they're just really, really stupid. The way has been paved by trademark paving. Just pave it. Serving Southwest Washington. We're going to talk more about this story later on, but I'm going to give the Daily Grill to the Clark County Prosecutor's Office. And here's the short version. About uh, 25 years ago, a little over 25 years ago, a woman was raped and murdered, and that's horrible. The man uh, who called in her next-door neighbor and called the police, he uh, apparently left some DNA semen on the, on, in the, at the scene. But the police arrested somebody else, a 60-year-old guy by the name of Richard Knapp, who was set loose yesterday. And why? because apparently they had had the wrong guy locked up for the last 1,300 days. Now, there may be much, much more to the story, but anytime you lock somebody up on charges for 1,300 days and then say, oops, we made a mistake and you cut him loose, that's got to get a hard look at it. I'd love to talk to the prosecutor, Tony Golick, but I know from experience we're going to ask him for an interview and we're likely going to be told no. Sorry about that. Today's best email, but you can always send more to talk at LarsLarson.com. Brought to you by the MEI Group, one of the largest heavy civil construction companies in the Pacific Northwest. They're currently hiring, and they're paying top dollar for project managers, engineers, and estimators, TheMEIGroup.com. David writes in, Lars, I never understand why other people, parents that wish to mutilate their children, feel they might have any claim upon what I legally earn. Instead, I encourage them to come to me to ask me to my face for the money. If they're nice about it, I'll be nice about it when I tell them what horrible human beings they are, deserving of castigation and perhaps arrest. If they try to force my money from me, well, I would have to treat them as I would any robber, signed Dave. Dave, thanks for listening on the Radio Northwest Network. Kind of thought I'd get some naysayers, but this is on a different subject. Hey, John, welcome to the program. Uh, you're a naysayer, and we always are glad for naysayers. Yesterday, I had mentioned something I've, I've literally talked about uh, over, you know, from time to time over the last 25 years. I don't think the government has any business being involved in marriage at all, gay or otherwise. You're going to be a naysayer on that? Tell me why. Well, <clears throat> I think, well, I know that you need some type of authority 
to record party A and who party A is and party B and who party B is. And that party A is actually party A and party B is actually party B. And that party A wants to marry party B and the party B wants to marry party A. And I can think of no other. Is it going to hurt your feelings if I prove you wrong by asking you a question? A few questions. Okay, let's try it this way. Let's say that you and I had some interests that align, and we said, hey, let's make a contract and do business together. Can we do that, John? Sure. Okay, and I sit down and write up the contract and say, John, you read the contract, change it any way you like. We'll both agree to a contract, and we'll sign it, right? Right. Do I need to ask anybody for permission to sign that contract? Nope. Do you? Nope. Oh, and at the end, say we do business for a few years, make some money or lose money one way or the other. And then one day I say, John, this isn't working out for me. And you say, funny thing, Lars, it's not working out for me either. And we decide to dissolve the contract. Can we do that on our own? You can. Okay. Yes, you and, can. If we, and if we had a dispute and I said, well, I think I own 70% of the business and you say, no, I think I own 70%, we might end up in court. Or we might say, you know, we'd rather not go to the government to resolve this. Why don't we settle it on our own? So if I can make a contract with anyone, second question is this. If you decide that you want to have a, the kind of a legitimate relationship anybody would have with a doctor, a lawyer, an accountant, a priest, do you need the government's permission to have that relationship? You don't. Okay, and, and if you decide one day you're going to fire your doctor, lawyer, priest, or accountant, can you fire them without asking the government? That's correct. Then why do I need to ask the government's permission to have the most intimate relationship you can have in your life, and that is marriage? Oh, oh no, no. You, I didn't say you needed to ask their permission. I said you needed some type of authority to record who party A is and who party No, no, hold on. Did you just, and I need that kind of authority? Did we need a third party to sign off on our contract? Well, hold on. Let's say, let's say you are party A and I'm party B, and it's a contract. But you, as party A, die tomorrow or today. Then you own the whole business, John. Good for you. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show on a Conspiracy Theory Thursday. And I think I have, usually I don't arrive on Conspiracy Theory Thursdays with a good conspiracy theory. But today there might be one. A guy who may have been locked up wrongly for 1,312 days in custody because he was identified with the help of DNA. Except not directly by DNA. I'll give you the details on the story in just a moment. But first, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. And welcome to the Radio Northwest Network. And if you want to jump into the best conversation and talk journalism, it's right here at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And vote in our Twitter poll, should your tax dollars fund mastectomies for teenage girls and castration for teenage boys? I would say no to that. You can vote any way you like at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com. And by the way, when I put this up on social media this morning, uh, there were a lot of people who took offense. So I kind of expect I might get some naysayers who say, well, it's perfectly acceptable to have taxpayer dollars go to fund uh, castration and mastectomy for teenage girls and boys who are not suffering from a medical problem other than gender confusion. But that's exactly what the Health and Human Services Secretary, Xavier Becerra, says the Biden administration supports. And they not only support letting doctors do it, 
but they support letting doctors do it with taxpayer money. And that's a secondary, it's a second issue, but it's an important issue as well. Do you think they ought to do it at all to kids? I consider it mutilation of children, and I think you ought to throw somebody in jail for doing it, even if he or she is a doctor. But I also think it shouldn't be done with taxpayer money either, even if you decide to do it. And I've pointed out that for a lot of parents out there who may or may not be aware, the medical age of consent in Oregon is 15. The medical age of consent in Washington State is 13, which means a 15-year-old in Oregon or a 13-year-old in Washington State can go and have this procedure done, and he or she, or they, whatever you want to call them, whatever pronoun you use these days, you do not have to consult with mom and dad. Now, mom and dad may bear the consequences, not necessarily the cost, but the consequences, and the consequences, I think, are serious. Uh, A week doesn't go by that I don't see another video from another victim of this kind of mutilation saying, I was talked into this when I was a kid. I told people that I was confused about my gender, and they said, well, the perfect solution is take some hormones, uh, have some body parts cut off. And I had it done, and now I regret it, and I can't completely reverse it. In many cases, you can't substantially reverse it at all, and people are still very unhappy. Now, Do you think most politicians are going to want to touch that nonsense? I think every single Republican in America who considers himself or herself to be a conservative. And in fact, I might ask Lori Chavez Dreamer about this, the new uh, congresswoman-elect in Oregon. I might ask her, are you going to back this kind of thing? Are you going to stand up and make noise about it? Because there's not much you can do about Becerra except wait for a new president, or if he does crazy enough things, and I consider this pretty crazy, maybe go after impeachment of him. Uh, Yesterday's Twitter poll went this way. Should Northwest politicians who got money from the FTX crypto scam give it back? And I gave you the example. The Democrat Party of Oregon took half a million dollars from one of the top officials within the private company called FTX, that has turned out to be a major league Ponzi scam, or if you want to call it a mini Madoff, where uh, Sam Bankman freed the guy who headed the organization up and ran it from the Bahamas. His company is now bankrupt. In January of this year, it was valued at $32 billion. Today, Sam Bankman freed why he's practically in poverty. He says he only has $100,000 left in his checking account, so he'll probably go on food stamps one of these days soon. But he and some of the top officials at his company gave gigantic amounts of money and they gave to Republicans and they gave to Democrats, almost 50-50. But he became the second biggest donor to the, the National Democrat Party, gave him 40 million bucks. But in Oregon, he gave half a million dollars to the DPO, to the Democrat Party of Oregon PAC, their political action committee. That committee only has a little over half a million dollars in his bank account right now. So you can see why they might be reluctant to give it back. But I've been encouraging my friends who are reporters. I'm a reporter too, but I'm a journalist that puts opinion in. For the non-opinion journalists, how about you ask Tina Kotek, who is at least arguably the head of the Democrat Party of Oregon. She is the governor-elect of Oregon. Ask her, have you demanded that your party hand back the half a million dollars that was stolen from people who put money into the FTX crypto exchange, and now the money is gone, billions of dollars gone. Will you at least tell your party to give the half a million dollars back? And I'd love to hear somebody tell me why there isn't a good reason uh, that they should actually 
do this, that the Democrat Party of Oregon shouldn't return all of that money right now. And uh, I don't think there is a good reason. And I think you ought to pose the question to her. I mean, we've reached out to Tina Kotek dozens of times over the last year. She's not willing to come on and answer questions. But if she's not willing to demand that the DPO hand the money back so that at least some of it can be returned to the people who got ripped off, well, uh, I would suggest that a good reporter would say, if you're not going to suggest the money be returned, tell us why not. Was the money the product of ill-gotten gains And is that really the way the Democrat Party wants to operate? So you've got that on the agenda as well. 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. I also want to tell you about this Clark County case that I mentioned at the top of the show. So a more than 25-year-old cold case. That's where the police have a crime. They know a crime happened. A woman was raped and murdered back in uh, 1994. And uh, Audra Frazier, Audra Frazier, was raped and murdered. They know that for a fact. They then said a couple of years ago in 2019, they said, we think we've caught the guy who is the guilty party. 2019, they used DNA. They did, uh, they did what they, uh, they submitted the DNA to a genealogical database about three and a half years ago so that they could find near matches, and it caused them to focus on a guy by the name of Richard Knapp, 60 years old. He walked out of Clark County Jail yesterday. He had been in custody for 1,312 days. OPB was one of the few or news organizations that's actually covering it, and I have to give them credit. But uh, Knapp's attorneys said detectives missed key lines of inquiry before they arrested Knapp, that they should have been looking at other people, that there were reasons to look at other people, including the next-door neighbor of the woman who was raped and murdered, who called 911 and told the police that his neighbor might be in distress. They responded. They found her raped and dead. Now, the detectives had listed this man, this next-door neighbor, as a suspect, but they never charged him, even though they said they found a sam- a, 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 uh, some evidence at the scene, semen that had been left behind, that matched the DNA of Scott Hinshaw. So, in any case, they, uh, they have some re- reason for, I would think, at least reasonable doubt. Now, I don't know who actually did this crime, and there's no way to know until somebody gets charged, but... As of today, Richard Knapp is out of custody, released. He had been sitting in custody for more than 1,300 days, and he has now been cut loose, and no one is charged with a crime, and that's a concern. And speaking of crimes that were treated rather strangely in Idaho, I think all of us have been following the case of these four murdered college students, three young ladies and a young man, murdered in their off-campus house, stabbed to death in the middle of the night. Two other girls who are living in the house who are not suspects never even woke up. The murders happened apparently very uh, surreptitiously. Well, the police had initially said it was a targeted killing. There is no danger to the community. And then this week they said, well, now maybe it's not a targeted killing. Maybe there is danger to the community. We'll get into that as well. Glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. And the Northwest is getting more Mad Max all the time. I'll tell you about the latest example from the Seattle area coming up next on the Radio Northwest Network. 
Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Well, I was just talking about the Richard Knapp case, and I had called his attorney earlier, and funny enough, Sean Boger calls me back. And, Sean, I know lawyers get paid by the hour, so time doesn't matter as much. We've got about seven minutes. I want you to tell my audience about this case because, look, I'm, I'm on the cop side. I'm on the prosecutor side most of the time. But if, it, if somebody's been locked up for a crime he may not have committed, and if mistakes were made by the police and they get locked up for 1,300 days without trial uh, and then are finally cut loose, i got to ask why. What happened here? The long and short of it is law enforcement, the new detectives took on, uh, they put on their blinders when they took the case over, and they focused on a new toy, a new trick, and they thought that that was going to solve the case. And instead of doing, you know, the good old passion police work that it sounds like you're a fan of and that I'm a fan of, uh, they just focused on DNA. We were able to uh, interview witnesses who had been ignoring us and not trying or avoiding being interviewed for three and a half years. We did a deposition on October 20th, and then nine days later, uh, my investigator, John Visser, and I went to the Deep South and interviewed a person who the police knew about from the beginning who turned out to be an eyewitness. Now, Audrey Frazier, no debate, was raped and murdered in 1994. Uh, a man who lived next door, Scott Hinshaw, called the police and said, hey, something's going on over there. The police come, they find her both uh, you know, raped, uh, sexually assaulted, and murdered. Uh, and they start looking at people. I understand, and I want you to explain to my audience, there was DNA evidence from this next-door neighbor found at the scene, was there not? There was. And when you deposed Scott Hinshaw, what did he admit to about how well he knew Audrey Frazier? Hey, Lars, I'm going to have my partner Jack answer that question. He really okay. uh, he handled this portion of that deposition, and, and uh, I'll let him handle this. All right, Jack, Hello, you, you, Jack. you got to tell us your last name as well. You're, you're, his, you're his law partner. What's, what's your last name? Sir Lars, it's Jack Green. Okay, Mr. Green, thank you. What, what did Scott Hinshaw admit to under oath in that deposition about how well he knew Audrey Frazier? Well, in fact, uh, what he indicated under oath for the very first time is that he had a sexual relationship with her and, in fact, had had sex with uh, Ms. Frazier the night she was murdered. Now, wouldn't that, for, 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 even for non-cops, wouldn't that make him an A, gra a number one grade suspect? Well, you would think so. Was he ever considered a suspect? I know that based on our interview with the, the original investigating detective that he was a person of interest, but that there were a number of persons of interest. Um, you know, the, the phrase suspect, it's kind of thrown around, but... Um, Realistically, in, in police investigations, they're going to have somebody who's a person of interest, and they're going to follow up. And unfortunately, um, even though there, in, in our opinion, is a mountain of circumstantial evidence pointing not at Mr. Knapp, but uh, you know, at other suspects, um, they didn't do this particular DNA test until 2017, and uh, somehow it got lost in the shuffle, I think. And they thought the DNA had let them zero in. Go ahead. Uh, uh, is this Sean? Sean, go ahead. Uh, yeah. But tell, tell me this. How does a guy get locked up for 1,300 days without trial and then finally gets to walk out the door? 
Well, and first, the good police work was done by the defense on this case. We, when we go down and talk to somebody who the police have known about for 28 years, who was never talked to, who turned out to be an eyewitness, I, I think that speaks volumes. Um, but to go back to the, you know, the confession that was given on October 20th, the person we deposed had claimed for 28 years that he uh, had wanted to have intercourse. He was nude. He was on her bed. And he accepted her refusal of intercourse. If you then admit to having to penetrating her that night, that's a confession in my mind. Um, and I, I can't imagine any reason to lie about that for 28 years. If you, know, you don't know more than what you're telling the police. Although you might think as a suspect, you say, if I admit I had sex with the woman who ended up being raped and murdered, they're going to think I may have done it, right? He got a lawyer in 1994. He got a lawyer? Yeah. But he never faced charges? No, no. Why wasn't this resolved with Mr. Knapp so much sooner? Any any real reason you can tell my audience why, you know, why it wasn't resolved sooner? You have... One thing I hope folks remember, we talk about jury nullification. Most nullifications happen in favor of the prosecution. Um, DNA evidence, people really tend to focus on that. Uh, You throw in 58,000 pages of evidence provided to the defense. You throw in witnesses who won't talk talk with us. You throw in everything about the pandemic. Um, You know, it, it, it was a challenge. This really was the first case with the first time with all of the uh, all the work we had to do when it could have ethically been tried. Now that said, on the evidence, you know, I came on this case early on. Um, if he was, if he'd been facing five or ten years in prison, I'd have recommended he go to trial right on right out of the gate because they just didn't have the evidence. But you know, he'd have died in prison, so you got to do everything right. Absolutely right. I'm going to look forward to talking to Sean and to Jack Green a bit later. Uh, Thank you very much, gentlemen. I appreciate it. It's Conspiracy Theory Thursday, and you're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Lars here with a question for you. Why is it that some people aren't as stressed out about the future as you'd think they would be? The answer? They're probably among the millions of Americans who prepared themselves with emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. If the worst ever happens, literally millions of American families are already protected from dealing with those empty store shelves. Is yours? Mine is. If not, go to MyPatriotSupply.com right now and grab some emergency food kits, at least one for every member of your family. These kits give you a wide variety of delicious meals that average over 2,000 calories per day. That's what you need. Everything stays fresh for up to 25 years in storage. Order your kits right now by going to MyPatriotSupply.com. Your order ships fast and arrives discreetly in unmarked boxes. Listen, this is something you need to jump on now before the next news headline stuns the world. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com. That's MyPatriotSupply.com. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's Conspiracy Theory Thursday, and your phone calls and emails are welcome. Glad to have you on board. And if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here. You can participate through our Twitter poll, Should Your Tax Dollars Fund Mastectomies for Teenage Girls and Castration, Either Chemical or Surgical, for Teenage Boys? And if you say, Lars, that's a crazy idea. 
Yeah, it's a crazy idea that apparently has been endorsed now by Joe Biden's Health and Human Services Secretary, Xavier Becerra, who wants taxpayer dollars to cover the cost of what they call gender transition surgery, even for minors, as long as a doctor not the parents, decides that it's medically necessary. If you want to vote in the Twitter poll, you can find it at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com and brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at UltimateTruckService.com. Glad to get your calls. Also your emails, talk at LarsLarson.com. And glad to welcome back If there was any justice in the world, he'd be a member of Congress now or member of Congress-elect. Lauren Culp, the former police chief of Republic Washington. Chief, welcome back. Lars, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. I wish I could call you Congressman-elect, but that didn't work out that way. Uh, Does that mean you're out of politics now? Well, that doesn't mean that I'm out of politics, no. I've always told people that I'm a fighter. So you, you never know what may come up here in the future. Very good. Well, I wish you well in that endeavor. It sounds like you've had a fairly significant decision from the Ferry County Courts. Would you mind giving my audience a little background on on what the accusation was and what the final decision was? Yeah, from a Superior Court judge, I might add. Um, Well, as as everybody knows, they followed the 2020 campaign. They followed the uh, campaign this year for Congress. Uh, My name and reputation have been dragged through the mud for, uh, I don't know, about four years now. I was accused of mishandling a child sexual investigation. I was accused of, of supporting pedophiles and um, standing up for pedophiles. Um, millions of dollars was spent in this last campaign for Congress by a Washington, D.C. PAC that was supporting Dan Newhouse with these lies. My name was drugged through the mud, uh, and it has for years. You know, this happened in the 2020 campaign as well. Um, but I was. As I told everyone then, I've always told the truth. And the truth was, this is not my investigation. It was not my case. It was not my jurisdiction. I was not the case officer. I was not the chief of police at the time, like a lot of them claim. But the claims, I have good news today. The claims against me have been dropped with prejudice. So I'm off of that lawsuit completely, and it's signed by a Superior Court judge. And by the way, we should explain, I'm not a lawyer and you're not either, Lauren, but uh, with prejudice means if you if you drop it with prejudice, if the judge says it dropped with prejudice, you can't, nobody can bring those charges again, correct? That's correct. And an adjudication on the merits means that the court has uh, made a determination on the legal and factual issues of the claim. And um, with prejudice means that it cannot be brought again, period. I want to know what you think sort of generically about the fact that in the last, especially in the last five years, it's not as though false information campaigns have not been run for probably hundreds of years, uh, literally, in American politics. But lately, it seems to become much more pointed. You know, we saw President Trump, who you supported, I support him. Uh, You know, he was accused of being a Russian mole. He was accused of, you know, any number of things. And and nearly all of those accusations were completely uh, done away with and and simply debunked. But by the time they were debunked, the damage had already been done. Is this what voters are going to have to you know wade through every time we see an election that we're going to see false charges laid because there's no penalty for laying the false charge? It only has to be true long enough to get to the election. Yeah, and and they 
engage in the politics of personal destruction. You know, Dan Newhouse didn't run on his record. He didn't run on him being uh, a constitutional supporter or a big supporter of <clears throat> we the people. He ran before the primary um, on how bad Lauren Culp is because he supports child molesters. That's what he did. And, you know, the curious thing about this, Lars, is um, I was only drugged through the mud in the 2020 campaign and this campaign by Republican politicians and some Republican Party leaders, not the Democrats. Democrats didn't use this tactic. They didn't even bring this up. Republicans used it in the 2020 race, and they used it for my run in Congress. And Newhouse and his deep state buddies spent $2.5 million in the two weeks before the election to defame me and smear my name. And some people believed the lies and voted for the other Republican candidates uh, who would not get out of the way of President Trump's endorsement and of me. And by the way, you know that it doesn't make you, I'm not trying to make you feel better about it, but the same thing was done to Joe Kent. The establishment Republicans wanted Jamie Herrera Butler when the voters said, no, we don't want her back, uh, and chose Joe Kent instead uh, to run. Literally, the Republicans would rather have Democrats elected to Congress than accept a non-establishment Republican. Do you think that's a fair statement to make? I think it's a very fair statement to make. There were two county parties, Republican parties over here, that endorsed um, Brad Clifford, who didn't even campaign. He only raised $38,000 in the entirety of a year and a half of his campaign. That's all he raised. And it wasn't a serious campaign, but he's buddies, high school buddies, with Dan Newhouse. They endorsed him, and he got enough votes. I, I mean, without him in there, I would have cleaned Newhouse's clock. But we have to ask ourselves, why do we allow the rich and powerful special interest groups in D.C. to get involved in our local elections? That's how the swamp stays in power. We should limit campaign contributions to the people who live in the district. I mean, that's the only way to get back to grassroots campaigning and and the people to actually have a bigger voice in who represents them. You know, Newhouse isn't going to represent the people. He's going to do whatever the mega donors that got him reelected want him to do. Why else would they invest a million uh, or two dollars in his campaign? It doesn't make any sense at all. The, the only the only problem I've got with putting those kind of limits on, I think that in politics, money is free speech. And what happens if I say, hey, I want Lauren Culp to win in Congress? They say, well, Lars, you live in the third district. You're not allowed to donate to his campaign. You're not you're not allowed to make a contribution. I'd be uncomfortable with those kinds of limits because then that's that's impeding my right to participate in the process. And if they say, well, you don't live in the district, they say, yeah, it doesn't matter if I live in the district. I want the state of Washington. I want the Northwest to have good representation. I don't live in some districts in Oregon either. And yet I, I, I have a say about what happens. I may contribute in some of those because I, I want to have my rights of free speech as well. So that may be a, a discussion we'll have to have uh, again in the future. But that's Lauren Culp, the former police chief of Republic Washington, ran for the United States Congress, lost at least in part because of charges that have now been completely dismissed with prejudice by a federal, a Ferry County Superior Court Judge, Patrick Mona Smith. Glad to be with you on a Thursday. Always glad to take your calls. I'll get to your calls in just a moment. But coming up in a moment, Joe Biden is now trying to rewrite even his own history, saying he's trying to wean Western Europe off Russian natural gas. And that is absolutely not true. We're going to get into that and a few other comments on President Biden's so-called energy policy. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show.
Well, I tell you what, no one's ever done as much as president as this administration is doing. Now, that is Joe Biden, and he appears to be doing something that is absolutely crazy. He's claiming that he is the greatest president in American history, which I think is absolutely insane. But, hey, he gets away with a lot of lying these days, and he doesn't have near the kind of uh, questioning that he should have from people in the mainstream media, from the opposition party, or even from within his own party. So maybe he will get away with it. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Glad to be with you. And before I get further into Joe Biden's insanity, claiming he's the greatest president in American history that nobody else, says Joe, has ever done what he has managed to do in just two short years. First, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. If you want to jump into the best conversation in talk journalism, glad to have you do it. 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. And as always, naysayers go to the head of the line. If you disagree with my point of view on anything, even our Twitter poll, I'd be glad to take the naysayer call. Just make your best argument. Stick around for a few questions. But this is what Joe Biden is saying. He claims that no other president has ever done as much as his administration has done. Now, he's not exactly dodging the question. He's simply saying, well, you know, I put together this team and they've managed to do all kinds of great things. Do you know, I can't even list off all of the crash and burns that we have seen in the last two years. It hasn't even quite been two years. It will be uh, in the month of January when we hit two full years of Joe Biden in office. But think about what's there. Gas prices going to more than double for a period of time. And now all the news can talk about is, well, they're lower than they were six months ago. Yes, they're still about a buck and a half higher than they were uh, when Joe Biden took office. And how about inflation? That was clocking along at 1.4% when Joe took office. And we'd already come through the bulk of the pandemic. And what did it do? Under Joe Biden, it shot right up to 8% plus. And now I suppose we'll play the same game with inflation that they've been playing with gasoline. Well, it's lower than it was a month ago. In fact, I can't wait for the day we hit 4% inflation or about three times as much inflation as America had when Joe Biden took office. And the news media will say, why, Joe Biden has managed to cut inflation in half. No, he hasn't. He sent it up to six times the height it was, and America saw close to 40 years where inflation averaged 2% per year or less, and Joe Biden took it to a point where we were seeing as much inflation in a single month during parts of his first two years as America used to see in an entire year. And yet and still, Joe Biden says he's the best ever. Listen to this. And I'm sure I'll make mistakes, but you know me. Don't hesitate to correct me when I make it. And I know you, you won't hesitate. <laughs> but I really mean it. I really mean it. Well, I tell you what, no one's ever done as much as president as this administration is doing, period. Now, hold on a second. He doesn't mind being called out for mistakes like shutting down all American oil drilling or all new drilling and saying he'd rather get oil from Venezuelan dictators or from other nasty types around the planet than drill for it right on our own soil. Uh, he'd rather pull out of Afghanistan in a way that gets 13 service members killed because of the ham-handed way that he did it. He sends a signal to Vladimir Putin. Uh, but where it really gets bad, is on the subject of energy, not just drilling here in America, but, uh, for example, I was kind of struck by the 
words of Senator John Kennedy. And no, he's not one of those Kennedys from Massachusetts. John Kennedy is from Louisiana, and he's a good man. I've talked to him a number of times. But I think John Kennedy pretty well summed up Joe Biden's energy policy very well with his own Southern-style metaphor. Take a listen. I used to have a beagle named Roger, and Roger was a rascal. About every two weeks, Roger would run off. He'd always come back, but about half the time, he'd come back dragging roadkill that he would hide under my back porch. Uh, President Biden's energy policy looks like something Roger used to keep under my back porch. Now, if you think that's unnecessarily unkind, let me remind you of a little history, and we don't have to go back far. Let's go back to 2018. Just four years ago, President Trump was president of the United States. He had made America energy independent. And he, was, he had a specific warning because he was very concerned about the fact that Western Europe, our allies in Western Europe, were becoming, voluntarily becoming, heavily dependent on Russia. And what he did was he said, don't do it. There will be trouble down the line. Take a listen to this. Germany will become totally dependent on Russian energy if it does not immediately change course. Here in the Western Hemisphere, we are committed to maintaining our independence from the encroachment of expansionist foreign powers. Now, let me translate that through. During Donald Trump's time in office, he said no to Russia's Nord Stream 2 pipeline. You remember the one that got blown up? The one that uh, they said, uh, or the, the popular view of it is, Russia probably blew up its own pipeline. I went with a different theory. It seemed the most likely suspects were Great Britain, Poland, and the United States taking out that pipeline. And why did they have to take it out? Because it would have made Western Europe very dependent, except that in the summer of last year, Joe Biden signed off on ending the sanctions and allowing that pipeline to be built. And you might wonder, why would Joe Biden, who now says buying energy from Russia is a terrible idea, why would he have signed off on allowing Western Europe uh, and Russia to build a pipeline to make Western Europe dependent on natural gas? Uh, take a listen to what he says today about it. President McCone and I have uh, resolved that we're going to continue working together to hold Russia accountable for their actions and to mitigate the global, global impacts of Putin's war on the rest of the world. The United States is helping Europe diversify away from Russian natural gas in the immediate term and while accelerating our clean energy transitions and we're going to continue working in close partnership with Europe as we move forward. Now, hold on. Let me call out the BS in what he said. He's saying today that he's trying to help, help Western Europe become less dependent on Russian oil and natural gas. This is the same guy who less than a year and a half ago signed off on the construction of Nord Stream 2, took off the American sanctions and said, go ahead, build that pipeline that would make Western Europe and Germany in particular especially dependent on natural gas from Russia. So he signs off of the pipeline, says yes. He sends all the wrong signals to Vladimir Putin. When he's asked about whether or not Putin might invade Ukraine, he says, well, if it's a small invasion, uh, we might have to talk about it. Uh, and then, of course, as they're invading, says, how dare they invade? Well, you gave them all the wrong signals, Joe. And you also signed off on that pipeline to make Western Europe dependent on Russian natural gas. And now you say you're trying to wean them off of it. Do you know what you could have done? 
is in the summer of 2021, you could have said to Russia, we're not taking off the sanctions. But if he did that, he'd have to say Donald Trump was right. We shouldn't allow that pipeline to be built. Instead, I think Joe Biden had to order that the pipeline be blown up. And that's exactly how it worked out. Uh, And America could sell natural gas to Western Europe to beat the ban. We'd make a lot of jobs and a lot of money and a lot of tax revenue here. But Joe Biden doesn't want that to happen because that would make his greeny environmental friends angry. I do think that Joe Biden's energy policy, as much as you can even identify it, is a little bit like Rogers Roadkill under the back porch. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'll get back to your phone calls in a moment. You know, the news just came down that the Senate has now, as the headlines are saying it, averted a rail strike. Oh, happy day. Look, I don't want to see a rail strike either. I understand the kind of uh, economic damage and human damage that that kind of thing would be. But is everybody else okay with the idea that private companies are no longer private companies anymore and labor unions no longer represent their workers but that workers will simply take whatever deal the congress signs off on and that management will also accept whatever deal uh, that is signed off on by the congress i thought they used to call that nationalization of industry or maybe i missed something in any case welcome back to the show I want to get Thomas Hogan on, who's the senior research faculty at the American Institute for Economic Research and formerly the chief economist for the U.S. Senate Committee on Banking, Housing and Urban Affairs. Uh, Mr. Hogan, welcome back. Yeah, thanks. Glad to be on. I want to talk about the CPI, but would you mind? I'll throw this at you. I don't usually do this to people, but the the Senate just said, okay, we're, we're going to avert a national rail strike. We're going to tell the companies they have to offer up the benefits that the Congress orders them to, and we'll tell the workers they have to take the deal that the Congress has signed off on. Is that a good idea? Yeah, you know, I think that's pretty strange. I mean, AIER is nonpartisan, so I can't comment on particular legislation, but it seems pretty weird for the government to be getting involved with negotiations between private parties. I think it's a strange kind of overreach that we normally don't want the government participating in. Yeah, and I'm glad uh, and sorry to have led you uh, off into that territory. But, <laughs> no but I mean, I looked at that and, and I think all the people are saying, oh, that's great. A rail strike would be terrible. And I think it would be be terrible for the workers, terrible for the railroads, terrible for the shippers and terrible for all of us who everything we eat, wear or have came here uh, usually on a, a truck or a rail line or, or in some combination of the above. And you say, well, that's great. We avoided the strike. Yeah, as long as as long as Americans don't mind that Congress is now going to run private industry, it worked out so well in Venezuela. Let's talk about the CPI, if you don't mind, because we're hearing people say, oh, uh, in fact, uh, uh, Karine Jean-Pierre, the spokeswoman for Joe Biden, who usually spends all her time trying to walk back the things the president just said 15 minutes earlier, uh, she said, oh, no, we're now seeing no sign that we're going to be heading into a recession. Would you agree with that? Because you got the smarts to to assess this in a way that I don't think either Joe Biden or KJP can do. Well, most con- most economists would not agree with that. The recent surveys that we're uh, having show that most economists expect a recession within the next year. And so it's definitely not the case that, you know, everything's fine and we don't have to worry about this. Uh, and, you know, the recent inflation and GDP numbers that came out this week are, are both – um, a little unusual because they're they're both quite high actually. So so CPI you know uh, CPI and then PCE that we got today have both come out pretty high. Um, they were actually slightly down, and so several 
articles have come out to say, oh, inflation is declining, but it's basically the same as it's been, you know, for for several months now. Um, And so that tiny decline doesn't necessarily mean it's turning down. It could be, but that's happened twice already this year. And each time people have celebrated, oh, inflation is over, but I don't think we should do that. I think that's a little premature. We need to wait and see after the next couple of months, because this number is basically the same as it's been the last few months. I'm talking to Thomas Hogan from the American Institute for Economic Research. So tell me this, are the things that drive inflation changing in any any meaningful way? Because I feel as though what you just said about them saying, oh, it, it came down a little bit. That must indicate we're on the right path. Well, there are also, you know, th- there's the margin of error. There are rounding errors. There, there are situations where you say it's going to go up and down a little bit. But if it's still riding along at about 8%, it's about six times higher than it was in January of last year when Joe took over. And, and again, you can't comment on partisan things. But, <laughs> but, uh, but I just I look at that and say, but all the things that drive inflation, are wages up? Yeah. Uh, are mm-hmm. people getting fired? Yeah, there are people getting fired as well. But are wages up? Is energy cost up? Are all the other costs up? Is transportation still a problem? All the things and f- a massive amount of federal money that's been flushed in with the promise that, you know, if the, if the Democrats get their way, there will be even more uh, money flushed into the economy. Those are the things driving inflation, aren't they? Right. Yeah. You know, so Joe Biden had said several times that this was Putin's price hike and implied that this was all driven by the war that, you know, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, and presumably that was because it drove up the price of oil. Well, the truth is, you know, the, the price of oil did increase uh, a lot even prior to the invasion of Ukraine. It actually was around $45 at the, the start of 2000, uh, sorry, 2021. And then in February 2022, before the invasion of Ukraine, it was was up to 95. So more than 100% increase even before the, the invasion of Ukraine, and actually went up and then came down a little bit. And so the, the inflation that we're seeing now is not really mostly in uh, energy prices. Even core inflation that excludes uh, food and energy is very high. Core PCE is at 5.2%, and core CPI is around 6%. And so that is much higher than people's wages are going up, and it's higher than the interest rates that you could get if you were in investing in treasury bonds. And so Americans are losing money in terms of their purchasing power. Their wages are going up, but the prices of the things they want to buy are going up even more. Well, and the other concern I've got, Mr. Hogan, is I try and run, I try and live my, run my family within uh, our budget, you know, and and say we're we're not going to spend outside our means. But an awful lot of Americans appear, and you tell me if I'm wrong about this, because they appear to be saying, I want the same life I had a year ago or two years ago. So I'm, but to do that, I got to have the money and the prices are up. So I'll just borrow it. You know, we'll put it on a, on a credit card and, and you can do that for a while. As long as you understand there'll be pain later on when you have to pay it down. Uh, and, and I've seen the amount of consumer debt go up almost stratospherically over the last 18 months, hasn't it? And, and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong about that. Well, so, so part of the problem is that we're putting it on the government's credit card. So, you know, during the, the COVID period, we, we had a couple of bills that where we decided to mail checks to people directly, right, like the CARES Act, yep. uh, sent checks to Americans and basically meant that we're just going to borrow that money and have to pay it back in the future. Um, and actually, a lot of people, when they got those checks, they used part of that money to pay down their existing debt um, or to not go into debt. And so there was a period for a while where um, household debt was actually going down. But then, like you said, it started going up again, like once those checks went uh 
expired. And so, you know, as prices rise, people's incomes aren't going up enough in order to keep up with the higher prices of everything. And so partly they're cutting back a little bit, but partly, like you said, they're just taking on more debt. Um, well, wasn't that consumer was spending up in the, in the most recent month? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, consumer spending is up and has has grown um, pretty regularly since we since we recovered from COVID. Basically, it's been so that that means that they're not really cutting back. They're they're still spending as much, if not more, uh, even though prices are up. Um, yeah, so yes. I, I suppose I suppose it's you know cutting back compared to what. So what I, what I meant was during the recovery, people were spending a lot, a lot, and then they calmed down to what was kind of normal for the pre-recession rates. Oh, so where does it go from here? I mean, you got the White House saying it's no problem. We're not going into a recession. Don't even think that. And they're not even doing it for an election because the next election is two years from now. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a great question. And it's tough because the Fed has painted itself into a corner here. You know, they've let inflation run uh, so high for the last year and a half and haven't really done very much about it. And at the same time, um, the economy has has grown to the point where they're afraid that it's a, a bubble, that we might be having a real estate bubble or an asset bubble. And that, again, is why, you know, most economists are predicting a, a recession within the next year. And so the Fed wants to be raising interest rates to get inflation down, but they don't want to raise them so much that they choke off economic activity and push us into a big recession. And so it's tough because, you know, their past policies have put them in an impossible situation where we're either going to get more inflation or we're going to get a big recession, and, and we just don't know. Or maybe we'll get both of them. That's Thomas Hogan from the American Institute for Economic Research. Mr. Hogan, it's always a pleasure. Back in a moment, your calls are welcome at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. You've got the Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Conspiracy Theory Thursday. And if you want to jump into the best conversation and talk journalism, it's right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And this segment of the show is brought to you by NickShivers.com for an instant offer to sell your home immediately. No showing, no hassles, and you pick the closing date. NickShivers.com for details. Now, our Twitter poll today, and I know I got some people who've not been very happy that I even raised this issue, but I try to take every single issue we talk about on this show and frame it in the most simple, blunt terms. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, an awful lot of mainstream media these days uses code words and euphemisms and evasive language to work around things. They will say, well, we're trying to deal with the problems of the houseless. You say, what are the houseless? People who haven't bought a house yet? No, those are drug addicted squatters for the most part who have set up camp in cities here in the Northwest and they, uh, they're using the streets as their toilets. They're using the public parks where they're camped out uh, as their shooting galleries. Oftentimes they use them as the place where they sell drugs or take drugs and resolve uh, drug disputes uh, at the point of a gun. And then you give them a nice, warm, fuzzy name like houseless. Well, in this case, what you'll hear people talk about is gender affirmation health care. And if you're not paying attention to the issues, you say, what the heck is gender affirmation health care? Well, what it is is this. Should your tax dollars fund mastectomies for some teenage girls 
and castration, both chemical and surgical, for some teenage underage boys. And I know that for most people, you'd say, well, hold on a second. That's crazy, Lars. You're going to cut the breasts off a perfectly healthy teenage girl? You're going to uh, castrate a perfectly healthy teenage boy? Yep, that's what they say. Health and Human Services Secretary Xavier Becerra has indicated the Biden administration supports using taxpayer dollars to cover treatments such as gender transition surgery for minors that medical experts have determined are medically necessary. Now, understand that for decades, probably for hundreds of years, if you went to your doctor and your doctor said, well, you got a tumor growing in you, and he says, I think we should cut it out, it'd be pretty easy for the average person to say, oh, okay, doc, I've got a tumor in me, and the best way to address it is surgery and cut that tumor out of me. If you had a sore on your leg or your arm, and it became not likely in our society, but other places, gangrenous, if you had gangrene, the doctor might say it's medically necessary to cut your arm off or your leg off or your foot off. I mean, if I had type 1 diabetes and I didn't take care of myself, I don't, but I, type, I have type 2, and the doctor said, Lars, you've allowed your health to just go to blazes and uh, your, your foot now has a gangrenous infection. If we don't cut it off, uh, you're probably going to die. I'd say, oh, well, that sounds like cutting my foot off is medically necessary. Except these days, the definition of medically necessary has changed. There was a written response, just in case you think I'm trying to read between the lines, on Health and Human Services Secretary Xavier Becerra. He was asked questions by members of Congress. And one of them he answered by saying, in writing, the Biden-Harris administration supports the upcoming release of the World Professional Association for Transgender Health Standards of Care, version 8, and believes that all children and adults should be afforded life-saving, medically necessary care. Payers, both public and private, should cover treatments which medical experts have determined to be medically necessary. Becerra wrote in response to a series of questions submitted by member of Congress Mary Miller, Republican of Illinois, including whether he believed taxpayers should pay for chemical castration and sex change operations. Just so you know, I'm not trying to read between the lines on Becerra. I'm saying this is what he put down in writing. They support the idea that if you or your child show up at the doctor and you say, well, my boy now says he's a girl, or my girl now says that she is male, she identifies as male, if the doctor says, well, then your son or daughter can be given chemicals uh, so that they change and they become as much like the opposite sex or gender as they possibly can be using both chemicals and surgery. That Becerra is saying the Biden-Harris administration supports doing that and doing it at taxpayer expense. So I ask you the question this way. Should your tax dollars fund mastectomies for teenage girls and castration, both chemical and surgical, for teenage boys? I would answer that one no. You can answer any way you like, at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com. And brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at UltimateTruckService.com. Yesterday... 
I told you about it. Now, that issue actually spans Oregon, Washington, and Idaho, this chemical castration at taxpayer expense and all that nonsense. This one has to do specifically with Oregon, and it has to do with the scam we now know as FTX, a cryptocurrency exchange that has gone bankrupt and taken down with it tens of billions of dollars. Well, the guy and some of the people at that company chose to give a massive amount of money but mostly, well, a lot of it went to Democrats. Uh, Sam Bankman-Fried, the head of FTX, gave $40 million to the Democrat Party. In the state of Oregon, one of the top executives at FTX gave half a million dollars to the Democrat Party. And now that all that money's gone down the drain and a lot of average Americans got ripped off, the question is, will the Democrat Party give back its half million dollars in ill-gotten gains? And so far, they have not said yes. You've got the Lars Larson Show. Oregon Utility Notification Center wants to remind you that whether you're planting a tree, building a fence, or just making improvements around your farm or home, click or call before you start your work to get the area marked. Then dig safely and avoid contact with buried utilities. You owe it to yourself and your loved ones. Know what's below. Call before you dig. For more information, visit us online at digsafelyoregon.com. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your phone calls and emails. Do you know, one week from today, Oregon is going to stand out as one of the only states, if not the only state in America, that has ever enacted an entire de facto ban on all citizens buying guns, including, crazy enough, off-duty cops. Now, that ban goes into effect for a period of time that may be short, it may be long, but it goes into effect until and unless law enforcement decides to come up with some kind of system for people to take classes, safety classes, that are mandated by a new ballot measure that voters, for some reason, approved by a very narrow margin, about one half of one percentage point, or about 27,000 votes. And until they come up with the classes signed off on by law enforcement and a permit system that would allow you to buy a gun, uh, nobody's going to be buying guns for that period of time. It could be weeks, could be months, could literally be years. There are ballot, there are challenges that have been launched. At least one of them is going to be heard in the courts tomorrow. So I thought I'd get somebody knowledgeable about the law. I've invited Professor Norman Williams on. He's the Ken and Claudia Peterson Professor of Law and Director of the Center for Constitutional Government at Willamette University. Professor Williams, welcome to the program. Uh, thank you, Lars. Delighted to be here. Thank you. Have you have you looked at Measure 114, and do you have any doubt that, a, that the courts are going to at some point say, this is not constitutional, or, or should we be worried that they will say, no, it's, it's constitutional, and, and you get what you voted for? I think it's going to be a mixed bag. The ban on high-capacity magazines, I do think, will ultimately be struck down permanently. The permit-to-purchase requirement, I think, will ultimately be upheld. But in the short term, I think the courts are going to have to prevent it going into effect for the weeks or months that it takes for the state police and county sheriff's offices to stand up the permitting process, to stand up the training programs uh, to enable the, the process to kick in. And it's funny because I saw that the state of Oregon's response, I'm not a lawyer like you are, but I, uh, the state of Oregon's response uh, was, well, you can't stop this law from going into effect. People will die if this law does not go into effect. Now, that's not exactly a legal question, 
But do you think that the, the, the judge is going to buy that argument that if we don't have a safety class program and a permit system, that people will literally die if this is not put in place starting a week from today? No, the United States Supreme Court this past June was emphatic that they see gun rights as a as a safety measure, that law-abiding citizens should be able to uh, acquire and possess firearms in order uh, for self-defense. And so I think the state of Oregon is making a tactical miscalculation in trying to emphasize gun violence as by itself uh, justifying this law going into effect when there's no way for the permits to be issued. And in fact, Professor, I, I just think about the young lady out there, uh, not, not that it's only young ladies, but the young lady who has a restraining order on a former spouse or a former boyfriend. And she says, look, this guy's threatening to kill me. And she wants a way to protect herself. And restraining orders are a piece of paper. They don't work all that often. And so she says, well, I'll go buy a gun. She's going to be told a week from today, you can't buy a gun, ma'am. It may be months before you can buy a gun. You're just on your own. I mean, those are the people I see at risk. That's exactly right. And I think at tomorrow's hearing before the federal district court, uh, uh, it's going to be precisely questions of that sort that the court's going to be asking of how long is it going to take for this permit process uh, and the training to be stood up? And if it's going to be more than just hours, if it's going to be days, if it's going to be weeks, if it's going to be months, I think the court's going to be uh, uh, very reluctant to allow Measure 114 to go into effect in that case. Now, and the state police themselves have said it's going to take 44 full-time equivalent personnel just to run the permit side of this thing. And then there's the question, well, let me go back to mag- magazines first for a, a second. You seem pretty confident that the courts will strike that down. Is that because there have been recent higher court decisions that have said limits on magazine size are not constitutional? Well, uh, that's a good question and a complicated one. Uh, The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, which is the court for the Pacific Coast, of which Oregon's a part of, upheld California's ban on high-capacity magazines last year. And ordinarily, that would have been end of story. The Oregon ban, which is, uh, is virtually identical to the California one, would therefore be upheld. This past June, however, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down a New York public carry law, and in so doing, the the U.S. Supreme Court said the test for determining whether a firearms regulation is constitutional is whether in 1791 or in 1868 there was a similar type of firearm restriction in place. And the problem for proponents of of bans on high-capacity magazines is that the most recent example of a ban or limitation on high-capacity magazines uh, was a law enacted by Michigan in 1927, uh, over a century after the adoption of the Second Amendment. So I just don't see uh, federal courts applying the most recent U.S. Supreme Court decision are going to be all that receptive to um, kind of arguments on behalf of the constitutionality of bans on high-capacity magazines. Professor Williams, let me ask you about this. As I said, I I have a lot of friends who are lawyers. I've never, well, I I don't want to be a lawyer, and I'm glad I never became a lawyer. But the Attorney General's office, Ellen Rosenblum's office, is making what I thought was kind of a bizarre argument, and, and I put it this way. They argued in their response that the ban on magazines that hold more than 10 rounds 
are not arms protected by the Second Amendment, which when I thought of that, I thought, hold on a second. So does by extension, could you say, well, the First Amendment says you have free, you know, you have a right to freedom of the press and free speech, uh, but it doesn't mention the Internet. It says you can have a press, but if we restrict the supply of paper, we're not taking away your First Amendment rights. You have a press. Go ahead. But we're not going to let you have the paper to put in the press was the closest metaphor I could come to. Does that argument make any sense that the magazine that holds the bullets in the gun that is essential for the operation of the gun, if you restrict that part, that that's not infringing on the Second Amendment rights of the person who buys the gun? Yeah, I don't think the court's going to be um, uh, persuaded by that argument. Um, The Second Amendment uh, protects the right to bear arms. Uh, Arms must necessarily mean not only the gun uh, itself, the firing pin, for instance, uh, but every part of the um, instrument that enables it to to be a firearm. Uh, And the attorney general tries to make a very clever argument, which is to say that magazines in general are an essential part of a firearm and therefore qualify as part of the firearm. It's just high-capacity magazines that don't qualify as, a, as an arm within the meaning of the Second Amendment. And I think that argument's just slicing the salami too thin. Um, uh, a magazine's a magazine. It's part of the firearm. And I think uh, the, uh, the federal court tomorrow is not going to be all that receptive to the attorney general's argument on the notion that, that high-capacity magazines are just not part and parcel of the firearm itself. Professor Williams, it's a pleasure to have you on. That's Professor Norman Williams from Willamette University College of Law. We'll be back in a moment. I'll get to your calls on the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to take your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our Twitter poll. You'll find that two places. Not everybody's crazy about Twitter, even though it has improved since Elon Musk arrived. You can find the question at Lars Larson Show on Twitter, or you can go to our website at LarsLarson.com. Let's go first to Benjamin. Hey, Benjamin, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? Oh, hi there. Um, I'm calling from Milwaukee, Oregon. I wanted to uh, discuss with you some of the stuff that's been going on with the Treasury Department and the banks. So uh, I'm trying to start like a machine learning business. And I've been, um, I got like this check from the Oregon CARES, the Black-Only Coronavirus Fund. And then I try to take it to the bank, and they refuse to open me an account to cash this check. And I did a little bit of research into what's been going on, and it turns out that in, like, the coronavirus uh, funds that were being uh, set up by Congress, they have billions of dollars of money that are going to banks, but only if banks have certain quotas by uh, the race and personal characteristics of their companies. Hmm. And the CEO of Unitas says that he came to Unitas and it was too white. So he's been trying to do this remedial action and giving money to specific uh, black-only nonprofit welfare organizations and stuff like this so that they can go back and get more money from the U.S. Treasury. And then there was even some meetings in the National uh, Credit uh, Union Association where they're talking about how they should disregard uh, debt to um, income limits that are normally for mortgages if those people are uh, black or Hispanic because they know that there's illicit money coming in 
to only, you know, only those people have illicit money coming in. And so we should just disregard their debt to income. Okay. okay. And, and, and that's getting, I mean, I, I got to tell you, an awful lot of what you just mentioned matches up with what we've heard about other programs that have been race specific uh, programs set aside. But it strikes me as strange that you'd walk into a, a financial institution with a check, a check from the federal government, you're, you're saying? Um, there was a lawsuit in Oregon over the black-only coronavirus funds that Oregon had. Yeah, and they and lost. Apparently, yeah, and they lost. And I was a party to that lawsuit. And I went to the bank that I've been a customer for uh, in the past, and I went to deposit this check, and they won't let me deposit the check. And they won't, but, they're, but uh, they're saying they won't know. let you deposit it because you're white? They gave me a bunch of uh, excuses, all of which are lies. So first they said, oh, well, your state ID is too new. We can't do that. And then, of course, I have, like, lots, lots of different documentation, right? So it's not, you know, hard. And the check really comes from the government. I said, look, you know, this check is, you know, issued from the government. You can go on the docket. You can see it there. I even have, you know, records with you guys on my laptop. You can see I have, like, okay. I, I have all these all these records. And then it stopped being that. It was like, well, we can't comment, but we're not going to let you be a customer. Okay, Benjamin, I wish, I I think I'm going to have to know a whole lot more about what's going on with that. But would it strike me as strange that both this administration and other administrations have handed out monies that were handed out specifically to benefit certain groups based on race or ethnicity? That wouldn't shock me at all. By the way, I want to ask you about something because there is a kind of a, a meme that's going on right now or a conventional wisdom that says that it's wrong to question when illegal aliens come into this country uh, that that those illegal aliens are disproportionately involved in crime. Now, of course, the most famous or the most recent famous example that was given that everybody reacted to when Donald Trump announced for president, came down the escalator, gave a speech, and one of the things he said was that when illegal aliens come in, many of them are criminals. Uh, And now they're criminals, of course, because they cross into a country illegally. Uh, That's a crime in and of itself. But he was saying that an awful lot of people with criminal backgrounds are coming into America. Now, people uh, in the mainstream media and a lot of politicians who are politically correct said, well, that's that's absolutely wrong to just say that. Now, they didn't offer any proof to the contrary. And since then, what we've come to find out in this most recent sweep of illegal aliens that are coming into America, five million of them during the first less than two years of the Joe Biden administration, many of them have been identified as convicted criminals on the terrorist watch list involved in crimes they've committed either in coming in or crimes that they have already on their record. Well, there's a brand new study, and uh, John Lott writes about it, and James Varney at Real Clear Investigations. And what they looked at was Western Europe. Western Europe had a great many people who claimed refugee status and they came into Western Europe, about 4 million of them. Now, Western Europe is about a third again as big as the entire United States of America when it comes to population. And what they've determined is violent crime is becoming common in Sweden, which is shocking a lot of residents of that country where, you know, typically they have a much lower crime rate. Since 2018, Swedish authorities have recorded an estimated 500 bombings And what they describe as gang shootings have become increasingly common. The country reported a record high 124 homicides in the country in 2020. 
and violent riots injured more than 100 cops. But they say it's not limited to Sweden. It's also in Hungary and and Germany and Denmark and Finland. And so what John Lott and James Varney did was they looked at the numbers, and here's what they determined. Over the 10 years from 2012 to 2021, about 41 million people emigrated into the European Union, and about 10% of them, about 4 million, were doing it illegally. And the influx of illegal aliens can be tied directly to the violent crime problem, which has got worse and worse and worse. What they've got is growing gangs that are involved, and they involve foreign-born who have come into the country illegally. And in fact, in Sweden, during the last two decades, about 2 million people, or about 20% of the entire population of the country, have come in illegally. And what they've done in this study is look at violent crime and how it rises when the number of illegal aliens goes up. And they point out, despite the European Union's population being one-third larger than America's, the estimated 3.8 million illegal entrants over 10 years is far less than the estimated 5 million illegals who've entered the United States since January of last year when President Biden took office. Homicides rose about 8% in just a two-year period. They've seen big increases in homicide in many of those countries, and they've actually tied it together, saying every one percentage point increase in illegal aliens is associated with about a 3.5% increase in the homicide rate. So I know there are people who think it's politically incorrect to say this, but when you let people illegally come into your country, you're going to see a big increase in crime. When we can see it from the in-migration and illegal immigrants coming into Western Europe, into the European Union, you can imagine what's going to happen in the United States. We've just seen a president who not only allowed but facilitated the illegal entry of almost, it's about 5 million people who've come in illegally in the last than two years. In two more years, if we see another 5 million, it will vastly change what America is what's happening in America, including what it does to violent crime. Your calls are welcome at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'd be the first to admit that every single day on this show, I learn something. And there are a lot of the issues these days. I think most of it is because our government has grown to such a size that it creates problems uh, that never used to exist before, and then they have to be resolved somehow. Uh, well, this, I think, fits the bill on that one, and I need to understand exactly what's going on with it, so I'll throw myself on the mercy of Jim Burling, who's vice president of legal affairs with the Pacific Legal Foundation, which fights a lot of cases that are relatively easy to understand. Wilkins versus the United States is not one of those that I find easy to understand, Jim, and I'll tell you that right up front. And my audience may have the same problem. What exactly is going on in this case? So I try to make this case understandable because it is complicated until you go the basic underlying facts. In 1962, uh, the Forest Service went to some landowners in Montana and the Bitterroot National Forest and said, we want an easement across your property, the driveway up to your property. It's basically, it's called the uh, Gulch Road. And they... Landowner said, yeah, what do you want it for? And they said, we want so our Forest Service personnel can get into this area, and we want some contract loggers to be able to get in and out. And the landowner said, fine, we'll, we'll agree to an easement. 
Fast forward, the Forest Service began to allow more and more other people onto the easement, members of the public and so on and so forth. And so Will Wilkins, who is a uh, basically a blacksmith artist and a neighbor, bought two adjoining lots and they bought property and they began to notice that there was increasing amount of traffic. And the traffic was a problem because people were coming onto their private property to poach, to hunt. Uh, at one time, somebody shot uh, Will Wilkins's cat. Now, the cat survived, but Wilkins is pretty upset. And he began to work with the Forest Service, said, we got to deal with this problem. And the Forest Service said, don't worry about it. We're going to go through a new roadless process, and we're going to turn this back into a uh, access-only road for Forest Service. It won't be a public road anymore. And everybody seemed to think that was okay, although it was a little slow. And then in 2006, the Forest Service posted a sign saying the public can enter, this is a public road. And Wilkins is upset about that. He continued to try to work it out with the Forest Service, got nowhere. And so he sued in 2018, uh, slightly less than 12 years after that sign was put up. Right. And the, the issue now and, is... And by the way, Jim, they, 12, 12, yeah, years, 12 years has a legal significance to it, right? It, it sure does. Right, because there's a statute of limitations that says you have to bring a suit against the federal government within 12 years uh, if you're going to argue the, about the title of property. And here the argument is about the title to the easement. What does the easement include? Does it include simply access for the Forest Service and their contractors, or is this a public road? And so that's a big difference in the property issues and, and the property involved and the easement involved. And so Wilkins brought this lawsuit within 12 years of that sign being put up. But the government is saying, no, if you had questions about the scope of the easement, you should have brought that decades ago perhaps back when the easement was first bought or maybe when their first trespassers went onto the property, so on and so forth. So the question is, is the statute of limitations what's called jurisdictional, which means you cannot introduce any evidence of the Forest Service working with it, the Forest Service telling the landowners, don't worry about things, we're going to get it worked out, or is it a strict statute of limitations where you have no ability to get evidence in? And it seems like a small deal, a couple of trespassers, a shot cat, but it's really a big deal, especially in the Western U.S., where you have lots of interactions between federal government, Bureau of Land Management, United States Forest Service, National Park Service, and private landowners. And we used to think you could try to work these problems out, and once you realize you could not work them out, then and only then you could sue. Because if you sue too soon, the government would tell you your case wasn't ready for litigation. Because it wasn't you're right. Trying to work it out. Now, yeah, because it wasn't right because out, because saying, oh, you're, you're, you're acting ago. too soon. Yeah, Be- because look, I'm familiar with easements, Jim. I've got an easement with one of my neighbors. There, uh, my water line runs through his yard. But I don't take that easement as an invitation to say, "Hey, I think I'll put a driveway uh, up where the water line is," because I I got it for a certain purpose. And, uh, and I keep it for that purpose. Was the Forest Service, is there any evidence that the Forest Service was being deliberately deceptive when they said, we just want this for access for our people and for certain contractors that we hire, and then they deliberately opened it up to the public, or what? Do we know? 
So I, I, we, we don't know the history, and that's one reason why we'd like to be able to litigate this case, so we could bring people onto the stand and said, what were you thinking when? Now, I suspect back in 1962, the Forest Service had the best and most benign intentions. When they told the predecessors to the Wilkins that you can simp- we simply want this for access for our people, Forest Service employees, and our contract loggers, I'm sure they meant that at face value. But as the years have rolled on, the Forest Service generally and the personnel in the Forest Service are not the same type of people that were there in 1962. No kidding. They're much much more skeptical about private property rights. They're much more pro-allowing members of the public into the forests. Uh, They're much more about conservation, a lot less about timber harvesting. And so I think the personnel changed. It's that they gradually themselves had a different understanding of what the easement was all about. And, uh, yeah, I think later on, some of them were perhaps leading the Wilkins along on a string, if you will. Um, but we won't know unless we're able to go to trial on this. Well, but this is this and this is going to be heard or has been heard. Oh, it was heard on it was heard on Wednesday, Wednesday. And and so but heard by the U.S. Supreme Court. Yes. Or one That's of the federal correct. appeals courts. Okay, because, Jim, it is hugely significant uh, because there is so much interaction. And frankly, I find it kind of ironic, and I'm curious what you think. When the Forest Service, boy, you cross them, you enter a gate that they've said, this is a gate, don't cross it. This is your own government saying, you can't go on this property because we say so, because we've get, been given charge of this property. They care a lot about their property rights and about their limits, even though they are the government that allegedly you know, is, is serving the rest of us by maintaining those lands for the rest of us. But when it comes to the private property rights of citizens, they kind of take a dim view of that as, oh, yeah, those are just citizens. You know, we're the government. Yeah, there is a certain amount of irony there. Because what could the, if the Wilkins lose in this Quiet Title Act case, that doesn't mean the title issue has been resolved. It means it simply wasn't heard. So what can the Wilkins do? Well, uh, they could try putting a gate up on the property. And if they do that, then you can bet the Forest Service is going to come down on them like a ton of bricks. <laughs> and, and again, additional irony, because the Forest Service say, we don't have to care about your private property rights, and you didn't bring the lawsuit in time. You either brought it too early, you brought it too late in this case. Uh, but, but you know, your property rights don't mean anything. But if you put up a gate, then the Forest Service's rights to access to the road, well, that's a big deal. I mean, the hypocrisy just spills off this one. So we'll hear about the result of this one, what, June of next year? Or do you expect something oh, sooner? May, may, maybe maybe sooner, because the members of the Supreme Court, especially Justice Kagan, surprisingly, if you think liberal really? versus conservative. Wow. But, but she's an administrative lawyer. She was extremely skeptical of the government's argument on jurisdiction. And, if, and a few times in the middle of the oral argument, she said, well, I, that's just not true. I don't believe that. Uh, to the attorney for the Department of Justice. So I think, I mean, I could go out on a limb because you can never predict what the court's going to do, but I think the landowners are likely to win this one, and I think it's going to be a surprising uh, opinion written perhaps by Justice Kagan because she talked, well, hypothetically, if I were writing his opinion, I would say this. What's your answer? I'll tell you what, uh, so Jim, we'll I, Jim, I'm going to look forward to the day where I could actually praise an opinion that was voted on and written by Justice Kagan, because I don't get that opportunity very often. That's Jim Burling from the Pacific Legal Foundation. 
Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Conspiracy Theory Thursday. This segment of the show is brought to you by Valhalla Tea, a perfect gift for the holidays, helping veterans with every bag sold at ValhallaTea.com. Our Twitter poll today, I know it's a family show, but hey, this is not my choice that the Biden administration has decided to back taxpayer-funded mastectomies for some teenage girls. These are uh, gender affirmation cases uh, and castration, either chemical or surgical for boys. And if you say, oh, that's horrible, I say, yeah, I agree with it's horrible. But the Secretary of Health and Human Services, Xavier Becerra, says the Biden administration supports using taxpayer dollars to cover what they call gender transition surgery for minors under the age of 18. And if you say, well, they can't do that to my kids, I hate to break this to you, but in Oregon, the medical age of consent is 15. And you watch as the gender transition, gender surgery crowd decides to push that limit just as far as they can. In Washington state, it's worse. The age of medical consent is 13. So, for example, let's say your 13-and-a-half-year-old daughter says, I was born a girl but I really believe that I'm a boy. If that 13 and a half year old, probably through people at their school, other social service agencies says, I want to transition and I want to be a boy. I want to take the hormones necessary to make the transition. I may even want the surgery to remove these breasts that don't, you know, that would not apply if I were male. That 13 and a half year old in the state of Washington is past the medical age of consent and can go get the surgery. And if you say, yeah, but a 13-and-a-half-year-old doesn't have the money to be able to do that. Well, the Biden administration is now saying they support taxpayer-funded chemical castration and sex change operations. And he didn't just say it in sworn testimony before the U.S. Congress. Becerra said it in writing to a member of Congress who asked the question. Uh, Mary Miller, member of Congress, uh, she's from Illinois, said, do you believe that taxpayers should pay for chemical castration and sex change operations for minors? And Becerra wrote back in writing and said the Biden-Harris administration supports the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, the WPATH, Standards of Care Version 8, and believes that all children and adults should be afforded medically necessary care in answer to the question about chemical castration and mastectomies. I find it absolutely horrifying. Number one, I think that doing this to children is mutilating children. And I think anybody who mutilates children should go to prison. That's my my blunt, honest opinion. Secondarily, even if you've decided that children should be given this so-called care, should the taxpayers be paying for it to make it possible? Because, as I pointed out, most 13, 14, 15, and 16-year-olds or 17-year-olds don't have the cash to be able to do something like this. Well, Joe Biden and his crazy cronies like Xavier Becerra have said, no, no, we're going to have the taxpayers fund it. So should your tax dollars fund mastectomies for teenage girls and castration for boys, underage, children? And I would say no to that. You can vote any way you like at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com. And always brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at UltimateTruckService.com. Secondly, I want to mention a couple of things that are underway. The upcoming session of the Washington legislature is coming up uh, in the early part of next year. 
They are now considering establishing a pool of money for every child born to a poor family. And if you say, well, what do you define as poor? They say that if any child is born into a family under the state's Medicaid program, which is known as Apple Health, the legislature will propose taking $150 million a year, a billion dollars over, say, the next six years if they put this in place starting in 2024. They would take that money and set aside $4,000 for every child born into a poor family uh, that they can only get to when they're 18 to 35. Now, they say it'll cost $150 million a year. So in a decade, as I said, you'll be very close uh, to a billion dollars that will have been set aside. They say the money would then grow in that fund until the child reaches age 18 when they can access it for buying a house, starting a business, going to school. And if you say, well, that's very nice. Well, but you're only going to do it for some kids. And in the in the pitch for this thing that I saw in the Seattle Times Daily Dead Fish Wrapper, they say you can use it for home ownership, education, pursuing a business. It starts with the assumption that if you are born into a poor family, that you're never going to go anywhere without the state's assistance, which I think is not only cockamamie, but it's, it, it actually will hinder some kids because they'll be told why money was set aside because if you're born into a poor family, you can never do anything. Do you know that America has billionaires who started out as poor kids? They didn't start out with rich parents who got them started with a trust fund. They started out as poor kids, and they worked hard. Uh, Oprah Winfrey happens to be one of them. Grew up poor, is now a billionaire. And you say, oh, no, but she's a person of color, and she grew up poor, so we really don't expect much of her. This is the kind of bigotry that is contained inside this crazy new Washington Future Fund that state lawmakers will be voting on in Olympia come the session in 2023. I suggest you talk to your representatives and remind them this is absolutely out of your mind crazy, should not happen, nor does the state of Washington have the extra cash to fund this kind of thing. Why don't we tell every kid to work hard and be a big success, and many of them will be. You've got the Lars Larson Show.